I've never, I'm just so proud of them and so impressed by what they're doing. And uh, this is uh, obviously our VBS Sunday, and so we are working on the theme. I'm not going to give up on the theme that they've been learning all week, and I want us as a congregation to get a handle on that too, because some of you have kids who went to VBS, and you're going like, what'd you learn? Like I asked my son Andrew, like, hey, what'd you learn? He says that God disappeared, and that was his, his reply to me. And I, I just thought that was hilarious because I was, uh, I'm like, okay, it was on the resurrection, things like that. I'm like, oh, okay. But the bottom line is the whole week was about that Jesus loves you. And, and that regardless of who you are, what you've done, all this, Jesus loves you. And it was just kind of this awesome refrain, nailing it in, making sure that the kids understood this. And what's cool is I think when we hear that term, oh, Jesus loves you, we all start singing the song, Jesus loves me. You know, that song rolls into our heads. And, and you start going, what a great kid's message. What an awesome children's message. That's perfect for VBS. But we're way too mature for that. But I want to be careful with that because I, I'll tell you what. We're never old enough for the term that Jesus loves you. You're never old enough for the fact that Jesus has, just has a great appreciative love for us. But let me, let, me, let me hold on a second. I want to think about this for a minute. When you really sit back and think about that statement, Jesus loves you. If you're not a church person and you're here today because your kid went to VBS and you were invited and you're just kind of here to hang out and find out stuff, um, that may sound like the weirdest thing in the world. Jesus loves you. You're like, wait a minute. That's sort of like saying Socrates loves you, right? I mean, some ancient figure from back several thousand years ago somehow loves me in the 21st century. And we kind of go like, Abraham Lincoln doesn't even love me. And I knew he existed. What, you know, going back thousands of years, this Jesus guy, how can we... Christians run around saying, Jesus loves you. And you're going, I thought Jesus was dead on the cross. He died for my sins, you know, kind of, a kind of statement. And this is very important that we kind of dive into this, let alone the fact that most of us are really confused about the term love in general, aren't we? I mean, stop and think about it. How many, you know, how many of you guys are fast, were fast at saying I love you to the person that you eventually got married? If you're married, throw your hand up. You were like the first one who said it. So you're faster than your, your spouse. You're like, no, we said it exactly at the same time. Nobody's participating. This is VBS week, guys. Throw your hand up if you said it first. You said I love you first in your family. To, to, okay. It's mainly all the guys, and that's what I've experienced. It's the ladies who are like, I don't know if I love you like you said you love me. You know, it's kind of that. It's just part of reality. I believe women are slower at wanting to express I love you than the guys are. And some of us guys, we're real fast. Some of you said like within the first week. Some of you were like me. When you're about to say it, you're like, do I really love her? I mean, do, what does it mean? I'm, I'm just like one of those weird deep thinkers. So I'm sitting there going, I need an existential moment here. Do I really love my, this, this woman in order for me to say it? And emotions are going, but I'm like, are the emotions really love? Or are these something else? Is this just attraction? What is love? How do I really know what love is? I love you. And it just comes out of your mouth. You know, and some of you are, are going like, how do I know he loved me? How do I really know? Before you've given that reciprocal, I love you back, there's always a bit of a distance. And um, I just find that interesting because our culture is confused. It's the pitter-patter feels. It's the, it's the great things that are going on with love. And then we say, Jesus loves you. And we go, huh? That's a, that's a lot in a, few, in a few words. If you really stop and think about it. Some of us, it gives us that fuzzies and the, and the, and the warm fuzzies. Others of us, it makes us fuzzy in our heads. You know, it's kind of that confusion that goes on. I want to kind of talk about it then. If we're teaching our kids that Jesus loves us. What do we mean? How do we crack that nut open to get what it's really inside? And so 
I want to start with this conversation. What is love really? Where are we, where are we going with this? Because if we can't identify what we mean by love, we're going to fill in that word with all kinds of different stuff. And you're going to say, Jesus loves me as a general feeling, or I just think he, it's this idea. Some are still confused. How in the world can this guy love me? He was way back in the past. So we're going we're gonna to dive into this. And I want to start with this idea of love. Then we'll start with Jesus, because Jesus defined his own love. He defined what he meant when he said love. When he was uh, walking with his disciples, it was the last night of his life. He had just finished having the Passover meal with his disciples. They'd all gathered up. One guy had taken off somewhere that the rest of the disciples didn't know, but Jesus knew he was going to betray him. And on this journey, on their way out of, the, out of that upper room, and on their way down the streets and through the byways and the highways of Jerusalem, they were on their way to this hill, and Jesus starts to speak to them, giving them a bit of a conversation, trying to comfort them because they understood this was a pretty serious moment. And he said these words, and he said this, then John fifteen thirteen, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And right there, Jesus defined love for us as it is to suffer on another's behalf for their best. To suffer on another person's behalf for their best. And so Jesus says, look, nobody has any greater love. There's no greater love than somebody's willingness to give their life for their friend, for his friends. And he's just saying, look, I care about you, that I'm willing to give my life for you. I care about you, that I'm willing to suffer for you. You know, that, clears, that clarifies a lot of things. Like for me, I always wondered why it was that I could instantaneously love my children when they were born, and yet I had to choose to love my wife. Why don't you have to end up choosing to love your kids? They come out and you're just like, it's my kid, I love my kid. You're just, this is your kid. And the answer is because you have a natural affiliation to want to suffer for your children. Proven by the very fact that the night you brought them home, you suffered, right? These kids stay up crying, especially if you're the mom. You're like, you are like Jesus to that child, suffering, giving your whole life away to make sure you can eat and survive and live. I mean, you, you love them with a physical, tangible love. And when you're dating and you're about, to, you're about to have a relationship with somebody and you're going to use the words, I love you, and you want the greatest form of love, then you're basically saying, I'm willing to suffer for you. I am willing to give my life for you. I'm willing to serve my life for you. It is my will to give to you me. I want to get in the way of pain in your life. I want to get in the way of suffering. I'm I'm willing to take whatever I need to take for you to have the best. That's love. And that's why it takes a choice. It's not some flippant thing we just throw out when we're dating or whatever. Because we know that can be deceptive, don't we? I mean, how often can people use I love you to get something? Maybe it's I love you to, to, get, a, to get, you know, your name on a will. There are people who do that. Engender love with older people just to get on their, to get on their wills and, and to ensure there's some kind of inheritance coming to them. There are young men and women all over the place using I love you just to get something out of the other person Namely, to sleep with them or to do something other than that. We use I love you in so many ways. It's so manipulative. How do you even know it's true? Especially since we all love our romantic movies, right? You watch that romantic movie. You realize those people don't love each other. It's all an act. But it looks so real. Exactly my point. It's not about the emotions. It's not about these things. They're not really suffering for each other. They're pretending. The only way to really know somebody cares about you, really loves you to the fullest, is their willingness to suffer on your behalf. 
That's what Jesus is saying. And you know what? I think I know why we resist this definition so much. We don't want to be loved. You say, yes, I do. I want to be loved at the depth of my core. I want to be loved. I go, no, 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 no. We love to use this illustration. When my, when my wife and I were doing premarital counseling, we'd sit down, we'd share this illustration. We'd say, listen, okay, imagine with me for a minute that I had gained a whole bunch of money. I had put it away, been months and months of saving my money because I want to take my wife out on a date. So I come up to her and I say, hey, babe, I've been saving up a bunch of money. I even found babysitting. She then faints because it doesn't happen. And so then I wake her back up. She gets up. She's like, oh, what is this serious? You know, so it's clear this is serious. And I say, now, here's the start of the night. Go get dressed. It'll make yourself look great. This is going to be awesome. I will take you wherever you want to go to eat. Money is no object. This is going to be incredible. And she goes, wow, I just really want a bean rice and cheese burrito from Miguel's. Now, I have three options at this point. Option number one. That's not what I meant. I'm not taking you to Miguel's Jr. No, sorry. I am taking you to this wonderful restaurant that I already had in mind that we were going to go to whether you said anything or not because I want to go here because I saved up all this money. That's my first option. Hopefully you've never taken that option. Maybe you have. Second option is the one most likely taken is, okay, fine. We'll go, we'll go to Miguel's Jr. And you sit down at Miguel's Jr. Miguel's Jr. ain't my burrito. You ruined my date. And you're not having any fun. She obviously is seeing this. You okay? Yeah, I'm fine. You know, that's how that works. Neither of those two are love. Love is when you look at that person, you say, hey, that's not what I was thinking. This is not what I was planning. I was, um, but because you want it, that's exactly what I'll do. Do you know what the next line in the dialogue is? The wife then goes, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. We'll go where you want to go. We don't have to go where I want. That, I, I realize I'm, I'm dashing your expectations. True or not true? We resist love when it's sacrificial. We want to one-up each other. We feel selfish receiving love. We feel horrible receiving love because somehow we're getting our, what, we're, what do you mean I'm going to get my, no, no, no. And, and the beauty of this is that true love humbles you. True love knocks you down. It's so hard to receive it. It's no wonder we want to go for all these other definitions of love. It's no wonder when we think of the thought that maybe Jesus would love people, then what he means by that is he sacrificed his own life for them. We go, oh, that's a little uh, uncomfortable with that. That makes there's a requirement that I would have to love him back, that I'd have to receive that. And in general, we don't typically like to receive love from each other. Don't have any problem giving it because it makes us look good. But when you receive it, it's radically difficult to not want to one-up each other. And I think that's just what happens with love. You start to try to love back, and back and forth you go. And love is engendered when it's true love like that. But the beauty of this is simply that, God, that what we're talking about, when Jesus says love, this is what he means. He was willing to suffer on behalf of his friends, of others. And, what, and, and so now we begin to think about this for a second. So Jesus, this person back 2,000 years ago, loved in such a manner that he was willing to give himself to die and suffer for other people. Well, obviously, that's just his disciples, right? I mean, that's who he is. But when you start looking at the life of Jesus, when you start to dive into your New Testament, looking at the Gospels or the stories that are there about Jesus, what you will discover is that Jesus, there was no one who could not receive the love of God through Jesus Christ. No one. That it is available for everyone. 
In fact, when you dive in, you see this. Jesus has just finished making the statement we looked at. He's gone into a garden. He's been praying that night. And up comes a man named Judas, one of his own disciples, who betrays him with a kiss. A Roman guard, along with a large group of the, of, the, of the Jewish leadership, come with him, basically come up to Jesus and say, is this the guy? They take and they arrest him, immediately beginning to abuse him, mocking him, and they drag him away to an illegal court proceedings throughout the entirety of the night, keeping him awake, doing false, having false witnesses come up and speak all kinds of things until the point that they drag him away from there, having already been abused before a man named Pilate. Pilate was the governor of the entire area called Judea of over all of Israel. And his point was he's standing there and they said, this guy is a Roman usurper. He wants to take over Rome. He claims he's a king. Well, Pilate interviews him, finds out this isn't true. And he says, fine, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take him, I'm going to have him flogged. Flogging was you took a long piece, a, a long whip with, with bone at the end and you just have him whipped with um, 40, I think is. 40 lashes, 39 lashes. It was intended to beat the person as near to death as possible. And so they got him to there. They brought him forward, stood him up and said, okay, we flogged him. Now, now, are you satisfied? And the people yell, no, crucify him. So Jesus is drug off, taken to a place called Golgotha, the, the, called the skull, and they put him there on a cross, nailing the nails right here, roughly between in the, in the wrist area called the hand in the ancient world. This include the hand and in the wrist or in the, the feet right here. And you would basically have to, on the cross and to push and pull your weight up to breathe on these nails. How many of you have ever hit your funny bone? Maybe I should ask who hasn't hit their funny bone? And if you've ever hit it really hard, it feels like fire. And when you drive a nail through here, it severs that nerve. So that every time you pull, all you feel is fire. And the same nerve drives right through your, your heels and your, and your feet. So Jesus is pulling and pulling to breathe. And this, and this horrific scene, what you're winding up with, is Jesus having been betrayed, abandoned by his disciples, and found, now found guilty falsely. All kinds of things have just occurred. He's dying on a cross. I think I would be a little jaded. And yet in the book of Luke, we see his fir- that first statement that he makes on the cross is this. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What? I mean, you want to talk about a vengeance cycle. You want to talk about a world that wants to get back at each other. Revenge is the way of our movies. It's the way of our lives. Vengeance. Let's get back at them. They hit us. I hit them. That is natural. Just look at my kids. Vengeance is the normal route of humanity. And yet Jesus is sitting here and on the cross, he literally says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Who's the them? In Jesus' world, who was the them? It's a lot broader category than we might assume. You see, there are people, I believe, that would have thought that Jesus can't love them. Jesus can't be, you can't be forgiven you're not part of the them because you're not on the in group. You're not part of the church. You're not here today. And I'm not, and, and, or maybe you're, you're not, maybe you're the wrong race. You're the wrong whatever color, you know, you're the wrong male, female, etc. And that's how it was in the ancient world. See, Jesus lived in a weird world. So weird it sounds like us. 
The Jewish people lived in, in the north and the south. And right smack dab in the middle of them was a group of people called the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans were an odd, odd group of people. They claimed they were the true Jews. And they had their own temple, their own place, their own stuff. And they, they had all these things. And they claimed the Jewish people were the false, the false Jewish people. And so they constantly fought. The Jewish people viewed them as these half-breeds that couldn't be trusted because they had plagiarized their religion and done all these things. And so they literally systematically persecuted them and, put, and kept them away from them, segregated them to this one community. Well, the Samaritans were actually ranked as just above dogs in the mind of Jewish people. They do not like these guys. And Jesus, the Jewish man that he was, wound up continuously mating and talking with them, ministering to even the rejects of the Samaritans, a woman who had committed um, all kinds of affairs. And what's crazy is that Jesus seemed to have a way of just gathering the unwanted around him. There was a group of people in, this world, in their world who had skin problems. It could have been leprosy, as we know it today. It could have been like eczema. And if you have eczema, you would have been shunned in the community, pushed out to the edges of community, wearing ragged, dirty clothes, and you had to walk with a sign, and you had to yell unclean everywhere you went. And when Jesus met these people, he touched them and would heal them and would speak with them. Probably the first human touch they'd received in the longest time. Jesus loved to gather these people. One of the other groups was known as the tax collectors. We don't like IRS agents either, but um, this was radically different. And if you're an IRS agent, that does not apply to you. The, uh, the, tax, the tax agents of their time period literally couldn't, would be told, Rome would say, go get a coin. And they would go, okay, I'm going to get a coin and I'm going to add two more on top because they could rake off whatever they want and keep it. Now, that's a, that's, you want to get rich, that's a quick, get rich quick scheme. Because you could easily go to every house in, t- in the area and just ask for a little bit more, and pocket it, pocket it, pocket it, until you are rich. And you are considered uh, just a, a, a betrayer of your faith and your family if you became a tax collector. You didn't hang out with them, you didn't want to know them, you would shun them, if you would sp- probably spit after they walked by. This kind of reality. And Jesus walks straight up to one of them named Levi, sees him in the tax booth and says, hey, you, come follow me. Later, we would know him as Matthew, and he would write one of the Gospels. But Jesus would go to Levi's house, sit with all the other tax collectors, having, having a good party time with them, talking and discussing things, because Jesus was unafraid of the go- those in the outside group. And some of us may feel like you're in the outside group. Some of us may feel that you belong outside of the in crowd. Maybe it was in high school or junior high, you weren't the popular kid. And oh, they would love to keep you out because they kept them popular. Or maybe in your work world, you don't drive the right car. Maybe even in the church world, you don't have the nice house. You don't have the things that you should really have if you're going to be blessed. You feel like you're in the out. You go, can Jesus love someone like that? Let me put it this way. Jesus did love people like that when he was walking on this earth. And if he was here today, I believe he would love you. Can I say that at least? In fact, I believe that if he was here today, he would love us even when we didn't understand it. Some of you guys don't have all the knowledge. You understand that Jesus died for your sins, but maybe you're, not, you're, you're confused on how that works, what that looks like. You believe in God, but you're not quite sure totally who that God is yet. You don't have all the answers. You know, the disciples didn't have all the answers. 
They may, write the, they may write the books later in their life as God leads them with answers, but they walked a long time with Jesus not knowing really what was going on. perfect example of this is the fact that as sitting at the Last Supper, these were things that they had done time and time again. This is a Passover meal that all the Jewish people had memorized the way to eat and what to do. This is on Jesus' last night. He shows this bread, and you're supposed to say these things, and you're supposed to drink these cups and say these prayers, and Jesus just breaks it all down. He says, you know what? This bread, this is my body, and it's going to be given for you. This cup, this is, this is my blood in the new covenant. And you're sitting there as a disciple, and you're going, huh? What are you talking about? That's not what you say here. Where are you going with this? I'm totally lost. And they got lost a lot. They assumed Jesus was supposed to be this kind of Christ who was supposed to do these exact things and take over and rule. And instead, what they wound up looking at was looking at a Jesus who, who got away from everybody and said, do you guys know who I am? Peter goes, yeah, I know who you are. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, yeah, my Father in heaven told you, gave you that information. And I'm going to go suffer and I'm going to go die on a cross and, and I'm, then I'm going to raise again. And Peter goes, no, you're not. I know who you are. You're the Christ. You're not going to do that. And then Jesus says one of the most harsh things in the Bible. He looks at Peter, his disciple says, get behind me, Satan. You know you're in trouble when Jesus calls you Satan. You know what I'm saying? You're like, Ugh. But he loved Peter. He loved his disciples. He even said, hey, I lay my life down for my friends. There's a very important reality that even when he, they didn't understand it all, Jesus still walked with them and loved them. Here's what's crazy. The other group that didn't understand Jesus is the leadership. The religious leadership and the religious and political world was meshed at that time period. And so your political leaders were your religious leaders. And these people, when they first saw Jesus, were like, hey, is this the guy? This is interesting. He does miracles. He's teaching stuff that we, okay, what is this? Until Jesus turned the guns of the word of God on them. And suddenly they're going, I don't like what you're saying. I don't like how you're doing that. We want this to work this way according to our traditions. And Jesus just blows all that to pieces. And they get so angry and so upset because they're so scared of him and so confused about what God was doing, they wind up crucifying him. You say, well, how do I know Jesus loved them? How do I know Jesus loved this out group? How do I know these things? Well, first of all, note, he said, Father, forgive them. Who's the them? In the first case, the them was the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, because they were the ones crucifying him, namely the Romans. The them in the second case are his disciples who abandoned him. Scared to death because they weren't clear what was going on. In the third case, it was the very Jewish leader sitting there looking at Jesus on the cross, mocking him. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's one thing to give your life for someone you love. It's another thing to give your life for your enemies. This is what he's saying. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So if he was even willing to love them then, yeah, you may be confused. You may not be sure what all this is about. You may even have at one time in your life said you hate Jesus, but you're sitting here today. You may have just thought it's no big deal. What's the big deal? And you may be utterly confused now, all kinds of questions, but that doesn't mean that Jesus wouldn't have loved you, that he wouldn't have walked with you, tried to answer your questions, sat with you, went through your agony with you so that you could see what he was saying. Sometimes he rebukes. Sometimes it's harsh. Sometimes it's not. 
But it's clear that he was willing to forgive. In fact, we know the one category he wouldn't, right? We all know the one category that he wouldn't actually love. And that's the really, really bad people of the world, right? All the evil people. You know, the child molesters and the murderers and the con men and the people who, get, who say I love you to get on the wills of grandmas. You know, those people. And yet what's happening is Jesus in the cross is sitting there hanging between two men, both of them who weren't thieves. They were rabble-rousers. They were rebellious. They, they had ran an entire revolutionary scheme against Rome and had wound up murdering people. They were insurrectionists. And had done the worst damage you could think of. And they're sitting there on the cross mocking Jesus, throwing insults at him. Until one of them comes to his senses and goes, what am I doing? I'm dying here. I'm hanging on the same cross. He, at least, from what I've heard, doesn't deserve to be up here. Everything that I know about this guy, he was supposed to be something great. And so he says, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? The evil dude. So at that point, Jesus would have turned to him if he didn't love those kind of people and said, no, you get what you deserve. Enjoy hell. But that's not who Jesus was. He was known for hanging out with sinners. You know what a sinner is? Any of us who deep down inside of our souls have something we would never share with somebody else. Maybe our spouse. But even then, when we share it, we feel disturbed. I know no one who has something in their life that doesn't disturb them. That they think, how could I have done that? How could I have ever treated someone that way? How could I have thought about somebody that way? How could I have ever touched that in that way? Whatever. Everyone has, deep in their soul, something that disturbs them. Sin is ultimately anything that's against God. But from the experience point, you may think you've never done anything against, against God. The reason you feel disturbed is because it was against God and he made you to feel disturbed when you sin. All of us are the sinners. If you have something to hide and you're coming into church and you're scared, you'll find out God already knows about it and he already loved you. And everybody here has things to hide. Everybody here has sin. Everybody fits the category of evil, and Jesus still loves us. How do I know that? Well, there was a man named Nicodemus who comes floating in to Jesus' life early on. He wants to have a conversation with him because he wants to find out who this guy is, and so he asks him a couple questions, and Jesus starts, like, blowing his mind away, going like, okay, you want to know about this? Here's what I'm saying, and Nicodemus is like, I've never heard this before, and he's just, and Jesus is amazed this guy has not known this. He's a teacher in Israel, And so Jesus kind of sums it up finally at the end. And he says, here, let me give you a simple example. And Moses, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, those of us who haven't had Bible, who haven't been at VBS and had Bible school and all that fun stuff, um, this story may be a little vague to you. Um, In the book of Numbers, there's a situation where the uh, the Israelites have been brought out of Egypt you know, Moses let my people go, that whole Prince of Egypt movie thing. And, and so out they come, and they're wandering around in the desert because they've rejected God's command to go into the promised land. Excuse me. And then, and then what happens is God, because of their rebellion and because of all their attitudes, God sends some poisonous serpents into the community, and, and they start biting people. And so the, it's getting so bad, they, 
Moses and Aaron go to God and they say, God, please do something about this. He says, okay, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole and hold it up. And anybody who will look at that, they'll be healed from the poison. And so they do this and this miracle occurs. This is so fascinating to everybody. They save the pole with the bronze serpent, put it in the temple. It eventually gets worshipped as its own idol, unfortunately, and so it has to be destroyed. But that's the story, and here's what he's saying. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And what he's saying there is simply this, that God loves those who have done sin so much that he was willing to even give his son, that the son loves us so much he's willing to suffer. For what reason? For the very sin we should have suffered. Notice the last line. He didn't send him into the world to condemn the world, which means it's already condemned. On the last day of the judgment, God isn't up there making people go to hell. It's like, that guy's innocent. I'm going to make him go to hell. No, he never does that. He just confirms what our life has already led us to. He is looking at the facts and he says, this life equals to this end. And so God sees that every human being's life is ultimately the whole world is condemned to hell. And that's a frightening thought. So Jesus wasn't sitting here to say, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going, that's not what Jesus came for. Jesus came knowing it's already all done. It's all doomed, and he came to save people out of that mess. He came to declare, you can come out. You can be out. Just look upon him who is lifted up, and you'll be saved. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Who is them? All the ones doing evil all around him all the people who had crucified him, all the people who had sat there, he says, this is why I'm here. I've been lifted up to save you. And if he hadn't said, Father, forgive them, if he had said to those people, Father, condemn them, he wouldn't have saved. It's no wonder then why he turned to that thief on his right and instead of saying, you know, enjoy your time in hell, he looked and said, today I will see you in paradise. Said, so you're looking upon me has saved you from your con- condemnation. That is the love Jesus had for the evil. That's the love that is there because Jesus loves everybody who is willing to see him as their Savior. You say, well, that's great for a dude 2,000 years ago. And all of us could sit back and say, that is an awesome example. Who in this room doesn't want to care and love about people to the point that you would have the moral virtue that you would sacrifice yourself even for your enemies? That you'd be willing to give back and care about other people, everyone, regardless of what they've done to you? Who doesn't want that morality in their life? That's what we hope our children would be like. And Jesus is the perfect example of that. And we say, that is awesome. I want to love like Jesus loved. But I didn't say Jesus loved you. I said Jesus loves you today. Present tense. You say, but he lived. No. Yes, Jesus died on the cross. But the beauty is he can love you right now. And he does love you now. He is extended to us because he's alive Jesus isn't a first century Jesus. Maybe we haven't thought about this very much, but he's a 21st century Jesus. He's still alive right now. 
You see, he rose from the dead. All of our documentation from the time period, all the eyewitnesses, everything we have points to the basic facts that the tomb was empty, that, he had, that the disciples had claimed to have seen a man, this man risen from the dead, and it changed their lives, that this person had clearly been resurrected. He was clearly alive after having died. If you want to see more about that, go back to our series back at Easter and listen to the whole series as we talk about where faith begins and we deal with all those things. But the point is clear that all these pieces line up that Jesus rose from the dead, that he was not some ancient historical figure, that Jesus loved Abraham Lincoln because he was there with Abraham Lincoln. And Jesus loved you and me because he's here today to love you and me and his love extends to you now that on the cross when he said father forgive them they don't know what they're doing he implied all sinners throughout all eternity that if we would look upon him who was lifted high we would be saved how much does God love you and me he loves you so much that Jesus was willing to get in the way of the suffering that was intended and aimed at us because of our sin. In other words, let me put it simply, he took your hell for you if you will let him. And he loves you that much, so much, he was willing to lay down his life so that you could live. That is the love that Jesus has for us. That is the love that Jesus has for you. It's not a children's song. It is a powerful statement of the present resurrected Jesus Christ who was God come in the flesh to take our hell that we would not have to suffer it. And here's what's even better. He did it so that you didn't have to go clean up and get right and be perfect so that you can get heaven. God wanted everybody to know you can't do that. You can't earn it. It has to be given as a gift. And so he's offered this gift to everyone in earshot this morning, that if you would just receive his gift of love, you'd be forgiven and saved, regardless of who you are. Would you bow your heads with me? God's love does extend to you through Jesus, and Jesus does love you. He is alive now, extending that offer to you, and maybe right now is the time that you need to receive that love. You would like Jesus to bear the, that hell for you. And yeah, that means that we hopefully would reciprocate love back to him. That's what it means to follow Jesus. We're just loving God back for everything that he's given to us. We're just loving Jesus back. And so maybe that's you right now. You're ready to receive the gift of the love of Jesus Christ that he bear your sins so that you do not have to go to hell. But you could have a relationship with God. If that's you, and you would like to make that decision right now to give your life and your will over to Jesus Christ and receive his love, I'd love for you to put your hand up and let me know. I want to lead you in a, in a simple prayer. By putting that hand up, you're just saying, yes, God, I receive your gift of love. That's where you're at this morning. Just join with me in this prayer. The prayer doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. And so your trusting him saves you. So just, this is a way of just expressing that trust. You say, God in heaven, I know that I've sinned. And I trust that Jesus has died on the cross to save me 
from hell. I trust that he rose from the dead so that he could give me his love today. I receive that love now. Would you lead me from here, please? In Jesus' name, amen.